finish that chapter off in a message that I've titled, Born and Bound to be Bothered for Blind Beggars. Yeah, we preachers like to use the alliterations, just so you know. But that's so much about what this passage is about. Just to kind of collect our thoughts around that. I read a story about a frog who kept having this recurring dream that he was going to meet a beautiful young woman. And so that frog had in his mind that one day he was going to live out the Disney fairy tale dream and that he would become a prince. I mean, that dream of this young lady just kept going through his mind. But, but he really wanted some assurance about that dream that he'd been having. And so he decided he was going to go and see a fortune teller. And as this frog went to the fortune teller and the fortune teller collected him up, she put him beside of her crystal ball and, and she looked into that crystal ball and, and she said, oh, I see something in your future. I see that you are going to meet a beautiful young woman. Well, the frog, he hopped, hopped up and down with excitement. He said, yes, I knew it. I knew I was going to be a prince. I knew it. And, and the, the fortune teller went on. She said, well, this beautiful young woman, she can't take her eyes off of you. She wants to know all about you. She's looking into the depths of your heart. She's fascinated by you. Well, the frog was so excited. He said, where will I meet her? Do you see us meeting at a party? Are, are we at a restaurant? Maybe we're at the good old pond. Well, the fortune teller's eyebrows burrowed up a little bit, and she said, no. You're in her biology class. <laughs> My guess would be that that frog's outlook on life changed a little bit from that point. His destiny wasn't quite what he thought it would be. I doubt he was so excited about meeting that girl of his dreams because his destiny with that girl was not a castle, but through a scalpel. Well, Today, we're going to be picking back up in Luke chapter 18, and we're going to see two different destinies really on display. First, there's Jesus, and he's bound for Jerusalem. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he will face the destiny that he was born to carry out. Like a frog in a biology class, Jesus is destined for death. He's about to be lifted up on a cross for all of the world to see. And he knows the horrors that await him as he goes toward that holy city of Jerusalem. And yet he has set his face like flint to go do what he is about to do. In fact, all of history has been waiting for this journey, this moment, this deed that he is about to carry out as he goes to bear the sins of all of humanity on the cross. Nothing could be more important than the work that Jesus is about to go and do. But along the way, he encounters this blind beggar sitting by the road. And that beggar's destiny is about to change as well. And that beggar's destiny is going to, in fact, change in a way that nobody expects it to change. Because that blind beggar is about to have an encounter with the Lord Jesus. Nobody expected it to happen, except for maybe that beggar and his friend. Now, ultimately, 
that beggar must have heard something about Jesus. Perhaps he heard something about Jesus' previous work in bringing sight back to the blind. That's something that the Old Testament had promised the Messiah would be able to do. And in fact, when we look in the scriptures, we find that only Jesus ever did that. It's a proof of his Messiahship. It's a proof that he is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King, the Savior who would come. Maybe, just maybe, that beggar had heard about Jesus doing that same work somewhere else. We're really not told. But whether or not that's the case, when this beggar, when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by on his way to Jerusalem, a hope starts to well up within him. He begins to think, maybe Jesus will come and will visit me and will restore my sight. But the people who were with Jesus, the people who considered themselves to be a part of his entourage, the people who were leading the way had different expectations. And so with Jesus on his final approach to do the most important work that would ever be done, they assumed that he would not have time to be bothered by a measly blind beggar. They presumed that their Messiah was making his way to Jerusalem in order to take up his throne and to rule over the nations. We talked a few times as we've been in these recent passages about how ultimately the Jews of Jesus' day, even his disciples had incorrect understandings about what it was that he was coming to do. This, This perception that ultimately the Messiah was going to fulfill it all at one time, including taking the crown, including taking the kingdom, when the reality was he was headed for a cross. And so they thought, the king is going to sit on his throne. He doesn't have time for a little beggar like this guy. Yet, even if we look at the reality of what Jesus was going to do, I mean, for such an important work, who could have blamed Jesus if he'd just gone on by? But Jesus here in this moment, in the passage we're going to see today, is willing to delay his history culminating journey to Jerusalem for a poor blind beggar. And these people, these people who led the entourage, they apparently did not know my Jesus. Because my Jesus was born and he was bound to be bothered for blind beggars. Let me just ask you, do you ever feel worthless? Do do you ever find yourself thinking that you don't have anything to offer to anyone else that they will care to receive? What about in your relationship with God? Are you living with this sort of idea that says, I don't have anything to offer to God, so there's no use in me bothering him with my prayers. There's little hope that he'd take notice of me because I have so little to offer. Well, friends, if that's you, then I want to encourage you to take heart because the Savior is passing by. And he's a Savior who was born and bound to be bothered by blind beggars like you and like me. Look with me at Luke chapter 18. We'll start in verse 31. You'll see what I mean. If you're able, I'd ask that you'd stand that we might honor the reading of God's word together. Luke 
18, 31. Then he, that is Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The first thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage is that Jesus was born to be bothered for blind beggars. This was our Savior's destiny. As he headed to Jerusalem, he wanted to prepare his inner circle of disciples, these 12 individuals that he'd called to this intense ministry preparation. He wanted to prepare them for what was about to happen in that holy city where they were going. So he took them aside in verse 31, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which were written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, when Jesus uses that phrase, the Son of Man, you should know that he's referring to himself, and he's actually using a title that appears back in Daniel chapter 7, as Daniel speaks of this forthcoming anointed one, this forthcoming Messiah who will come on the clouds of heaven to take an eternal rule in an eternal kingdom as he receives glory and that kingdom and dominion over all nations. Jesus was that coming Messiah. He was that anointed rescuer. So when he uses that phrase, he's referring to himself. He's identifying himself as the one that Daniel had promised. And by the way, those things which were written about the Son of Man were written hundreds of years before what Jesus is saying, before what Jesus is going to do in these moments. And they were recording events that happened even before they were written down in many cases. They were written by various individuals. Even from the fall of mankind, there in the Garden of Eden, we read that God had revealed that one day the son of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. 
And now Jesus, as he's preparing to go to Jerusalem, says all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Jesus had come to fulfill God's promises about the Messiah. He was born for this. And some of those promises indicated that the coming Messiah would be bruised for the transgressions of others and crushed for our sins as God would cause the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill those very promises. He also came to fulfill the promises that he'd preached in his very first sermon as he turned to Isaiah 61 in his first sermon recorded by Luke back in chapter 4. That's where he quoted the words of the prophet to say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. And then Jesus rolled the scroll up, handed it back over and said, These words are fulfilled in your very hearing. You see, Jesus made it clear from the beginning of his ministry that the promises of God he came to fulfill, to fulfill included recovery of sight to the blind, release of captives, and freedom for the oppressed. He was born to fulfill these promises. He was born to be bothered for blind beggars. And one of the reasons we trust in Jesus is because of the amazing way that he stepped into history. And as he did so, he fulfilled what God had revealed for years before through that variety of writers. The Bible is incredibly consistent. This book that you hold in your hands, or maybe you look it up on your digital device, it's incredibly consistent in this testimony of what this Messiah would be like. It consists of 66 books that were written by about 40 different authors over a time span of at least 1,600 years. And yet it contains this remarkable unity in the way that it attests to this one single hero. And Jesus is that hero. Take, for example, the predictions that are made by the Old Testament prophets just dealing with the betrayal and the trial and the death and burial of Jesus. The prophets had prophesied that, that for one, he would be the Messiah who would be sold for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah eleven twelve. Secondly, he would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41, 9. He would be forsaken by uh, his disciples, Zechariah 13, 7. He would be accused by false witnesses, Psalm 35, 11. He would be silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53, 7. He would be scourged, Isaiah 56. His garments would be divided, Psalm 22, 18. He would be mocked by his enemies, Psalm 22, 7 and 8. He would be given vinegar to drink, Psalm 69, verse 21. Not a bone of his body would be broken, Psalm 34, verse 20. He would be numbered among transgressions, ha transgressors hanging between two thieves, Isaiah 53, verse 12. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, 9. Altogether, my friends, there were at least 25 such prophecies uttered over a span of at least 500 years. But they were all fulfilled within 
24 hours. The probability of all of that happening in this one individual was astronomically low. Unless, of course, God knew what he was doing. Unless, of course, God keeps his word. And Jesus, Jesus came to show us, friends, that God keeps his word. Don't tell me that coming to faith in Christ is a blind leap, my friends, because it is no blind leap. It's simply a matter of evaluating the evidence to see that God is faithful to his word. We honor the reality that God does what he says. He keeps his word just as he's proven throughout history. So friends, take heart because God keeps his word. Even when the tornado strikes, God keeps his word. Even when the stock market is falling, God keeps his word. Even when the coronavirus is spreading, God keeps his word. And so, my friends, I will stand on every promise of God. Will you? If you will, then you will realize that Jesus was born to be bothered by blind beggars. But also, secondly, Jesus was bound to be bothered for blind beggars. Not only was Jesus born for this task, he was steadfast in his resolve to carry out the work that blind beggars needed. And so he goes on to describe the faith that awaits him as he arrives in Jerusalem. This fate which will fulfill what was written by the law and the prophets, he speaks of a fate which will crash through the cross. He says in verse 32 that he, as the Son of Man, will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. That's a terrible fate for the God of creation to face. He knows what's coming. And it's the harshest, cruelest fate that you could ever imagine. It's a fate of betrayal by his own people. It's a fate of abuse and mockery and mistreatment by a wicked government. It's a fate of a leather whip with hooks and metal embedded in it, lashed upon his back until his skin was left in strips. It's a fate that ultimately leads to a shameful, naked crucifixion on a wooden cross with nails in his feet. And in his side, his spear was shoved as my Savior hung there to die on the cross of Calvary. It's not the fate that the disciples were expecting. They were expecting their Messiah to take up an earthly throne right away. So even as Jesus told them directly what was about to happen here in this passage, they didn't understand it. In fact, Luke describes to us three different ways. He tells us really the same thing three different times and just kind of approaches it from different angles. And in all of those, we learn that they just didn't get it. So Luke says, firstly, Uh, The disciples understood none of these things. Secondly, the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. Thirdly, they did not comprehend the things that were said. You see, Luke is going all out to show that these disciples just didn't 
get it. They were blind to what was about to happen. They expected their Messiah to be a king who would defeat their enemies and establish his eternal kingdom. And friends, he will be that Messiah. But first, he had a work to do on Calvary's hill. They expected their Messiah to be going for a coronation with a crown of gold and not a crucifixion with a crown of thorns. They were looking for the Messiah who would kill the enemies of his people, not one who would be betrayed by his own people and killed by their enemies. Why go through all of that? Why face the cross? Because that's what blind beggars like you and me needed. As the prophet Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Yes, Jesus was bound to be bothered for blind beggars. In fact, Matthew and Mark, in their gospel accounts of this same event, both record a brief episode between Jesus' prediction of his death and then that episode where we meet the blind beggar, as we've read here together this morning. And in that episode that happens between these two events, we find in Matthew 20 and Mark 10 that right after Jesus tells about the death that awaits him, right after he tells his disciples that I'm going to the cross to face this shameful death, John and James and their mother come to him requesting that they can sit on the seats to his right and his left beside his throne. I mean, it's amazing to think that Jesus is about to face the ultimate humiliation and they want to receive the ultimate exaltation in that moment. They just didn't get it. And at the end of that, Jesus ultimately tells them that whoever wants to be great in this kingdom must become small. If you want to be great, you must become the servant of all. And he ultimately tells them, the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, many blind beggars needed this work of God to ransom them from their slavery, from their sin, from their destiny with death. And here's the ultimate reality that we all need to realize. It's this. We're all blind beggars who need Jesus. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 1.4, who gave himself, speaking of Christ, he gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Titus 2.14, we read that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. 1 Peter 3.18, we read, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Do you see, friends? Jesus did this for blind beggars like you and like me. Why did he die? He died to redeem broken sinners. He came to redeem us of all that we face as blind beggars, as we stumble around, as we try to make our own way, as we ultimately find that we are bankrupt in our own righteousness. 
and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all move on to the next example where ultimately we find this blind beggar who teaches us the lesson that we all need to know in the midst of our own spiritual blindness. And here's the lesson we need to see in this example. When Jesus passes by, we should cry out to him in faith that he would be merciful to us. Jesus was on a one-way trip to the cross. This would be the last time that he would be passing through the city known as Jericho. And in Jericho, he encounters two blind men, or just outside of that city, in fact. We see that in Matthew's gospel, Luke doesn't record that there were two. As a matter of fact, Luke and Mark both only report one individual. And we assume that's just because one of them was the spokesman of the two. And so when you're just trying to draw the lessons out, it's easier sometimes to focus on one of those individuals. Bartimaeus is the name of this individual. Mark gives us that. None of the other gospel authors do. So we know there's a blind man and his friend who are there outside of the city that is known as Jericho. Now, Jericho is a famous biblical city. If you remember, Joshua leading the nation of Israel into the conquest led them as they marched around those thick walls of Jericho. And ultimately, with a shout, God brought those walls tumbling down. Well, in the time of, of Jesus, there were really a couple of Jerichos. One was that old city, which had now been abandoned and was kind of lying in rubbles, but was still inhabited by some of the poor of the area. There was also a new Jerusalem that Herod had commissioned to be rebuilt. And so there's a little bit of a discrepancy that you might see if you're reading uh, Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel versus Luke's gospel, but that can easily be resolved if you know there are two Jerichos. Because Matthew and Mark both record that, that Jesus was uh, approaching Jericho, whereas Luke records that he was leaving Jericho. But depending on which gospel you're reading, it's just a matter that Jesus was between these two cities, the new and the old. And so Jesus is making his way between the Jerichos as he encounters this blind man here in verse 35. As he approached, we see that Bartimaeus the beggar realized an urgent need. He sensed in this moment that his window of opportunity to encounter the Lord Jesus was now or it was never. And so he acted while there was still time. And friends, we're all blind beggars who need Jesus. But we all face the same reality that there's only a small window of time through which we can call upon him. Isaiah 55 verse 6 commands us that we must seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So Bartimaeus took action when Jesus was passing by. Now you might say, well, did Jesus still pass by? Like, does that really have any kind of application for us? Well, well think about it. What would it look like for you and me to have the opportunity to exercise the faith that healed Bartimaeus. It would be a matter of hearing the good news about Jesus. It's a, it's a matter of, of hearing the good news like I'm preaching to you here today. And I just want you to know that Jesus is passing by today, friends. 
Every time we talk about the crucified Savior who came to stand in your place and to bear your penalty and set you free, Jesus is passing by, my friends. Will you perk up and take notice? Will you receive him gladly? Or are you only content to sit there in your silence and to continue to hope for the best you can earn through your own begging? Bartimaeus gives us a good example here because Bartimaeus made the most of his window of opportunity. And I hope you all will as well. Because Jesus is passing by. And today you have an opportunity to receive him. You have an opportunity for your eternal destination to be be transferred from the hell which you rightly deserve now to the heaven that God grants you by grace through faith. Your sins can be forgiven if you will turn from them and turn to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness as Savior and Lord. But you must realize that you will not always have this opportunity. When you die, it will be gone. And so Paul writes to us in 2 Corinthians 6.2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now you may ask, how should a blind beggar respond if he wants to respond to that window of opportunity as Jesus is passing by? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because this blind beggar exemplifies for us four ways that we ought to respond when Jesus is passing by. The first is this. Cry out for mercy. That's what Bartimaeus does in verse 37. He can see as he's there by the road begging for change. He can't see, I should say, but yet he can hear. And as he hears, he hears a large crowd. He hears a large commotion. He hears the rumbling of people coming by with excitement. And so Bartimaeus, in some way or another, gets the attention of someone in that crowd. And we read that he inquires, and when he inquires, he finds out in verse 36 that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, even in this, we see there's a little bit of a, a, a hint of the faith that Bartimaeus already holds in this event, because he's simply told that Jesus of Nazareth, that just means Jesus, uh, a resident of the area known as Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene is passing by. That's all he's told. And yet when Bartimaeus begins to cry out for Jesus, he doesn't say, Jesus the Nazareth, come and have mercy. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me in verse 38. He's crying out for mercy And if you're a blind beggar who wants to receive riches from the Savior, you will cry out for mercy too. But the fact that Bartimaeus refers to Jesus as the son of David is a hint, ultimately, that Jesus is to him understood to be the Messiah. He is the one that God has promised as the rescuer of his people. Because ultimately, God made the promise to David that this Messiah, this rescuer, this eternal king who would reign on a throne that would never end would come as one of David's descendants. So for Bartimaeus to call out for him as the the son of David, he's crying out to the one he understands to be God's rescuer. And Bartimaeus, when he cries out, he cries out in faith. In fact, when Jesus heals him, he says, your faith has made you 
well. And true faith cries out for mercy. What is mercy? Well, mercy is just compassion that moves to meet a need of someone who is in need. Adrian Rogers once said, mercy is sympathy with legs. And when Jesus goes to make the difference in this man's life, we read that he did so because he was moved with compassion over in Matthew 20, verse 34. A cry for mercy is a cry that our God stands ready to answer because he is a God who is full of mercy and loving kindness and compassion. So cry out for mercy because that's the first way a blind beggar ought to respond when Jesus is passing by. Here's the second. Persist and don't give up. That's what Bartimaeus does in this passage. We read in verse 39 that those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But this blind beggar wouldn't give up his hope for a cure. He wouldn't give up his search for a savior. And I wonder, I just wonder where we would have been if we had been living at this time in the midst of this crowd following Jesus. It kind of makes sense to us sometimes to put things just in the pragmatic terms of what can a person offer before we decide whether or not we're willing to invest ourselves in ministry to care for that person's need. And so, like, if we were living in that day, there's a likelihood that we're just kind of walking through and we see a blind beggar. He doesn't have any finances. He can't see. He can't move around without bumping into things. Like, he's not going to be an awesome servant of the Lord, we might practically kind of put things into those sorts of evaluations. Praise God, he doesn't use the same evaluation scheme that you and I do. Because our God is willing to go after those who can provide him nothing so that he can grant to them everything. Sometimes we might look at a person like this and say, I don't want to be bothered by a person who only offers problems with no solutions. And that must be what this crowd thought. And so they told Bartimaeus to be quiet. They told him sternly that he should hush up, so to speak. And that's not what Jesus thought. And look, friends, maybe someone's been telling you that you need to be quiet. Maybe someone's been telling you that you're not worthy. Maybe you've been telling yourself these very same things. But Jesus is passing by and his mercy outweighs your worthiness. In fact, to Jesus, a blind beggar was worth going to Jerusalem and being mocked and spat upon and crucified. So persist and don't give up hope and that just leads me to ask the question are we available to be bothered like if we're really going to be the living example of what christ modeled for us here on this earth are we willing to be bothered by the sorts of people who only offer us problems and no solutions because that's what jesus was willing to do I mean, what do we have that demands our time that could rival what Jesus was going to do? 
What is it about our ministry that's more important than his? Sure, we need to set priorities. And certainly, there are some things that we should lead to others so that we can give attention to more important matters. But how often is that just an excuse for you and me? Because we don't want to be bothered. Let me just wear my heart on my sleeve here for a moment. I went to evangelism training yesterday because I knew it was a good thing to do. Uh, I was hoping to encourage others from the flock to, to get engaged and to get more involved. But, but really, like truth be told, yesterday I was just worried about getting my sermon ready so that I could preach to all of you today and, and hope that the gospel would come through clear enough that someone might be holy, okay? So like there's a part of me that's just in that training with a tight chest thinking about all I've got to do. But man, they really shocked us with that training because they didn't tell us that we were going to be going out house to house as a part of that. Now, I've done that before, but had I not done that, I probably would not have signed up. So they're probably wise in not doing that. But even as we went out, even as we went from house to house, I'm thinking, I've got so much to do. Like, I need to get home. I need to get this done. Well, the third house that we went to, there were three individuals who were out in the yard. We later learned that they were from Ecuador, but they didn't speak a lick of English. And so, like, my mind, I'm thinking, oh, we're really just wasting our time here. I mean, I can't have communication with these people. But God had a different plan. And as we were there, a man came out of the house who spoke English and spoke Spanish and we witnessed to those three individuals through that man, and they received Jesus as their Lord. And here I was thinking, we're wasting our time. I need to be working on my sermon. I need to be getting the gospel out so that people... But friends, my priorities were all out of whack. And I wish I could tell you, like, I'm emerging the hero from that, that I'm going to get it all right. I'm not. But look... Our God is faithful, and our God cares about the lowly. He cares about the blind beggars that we, too, must confess that we once were if there's any sense of hope within us that's going to endure. When Bartimaeus was told that Jesus was passing by, he called out for mercy. When others told him to be quiet, he kept crying out all the more, he wasn't going to let the expectations of others keep him from the blessings of the Savior. And I, I just wonder, what would it take for your faith to be shaken? What would it take for you to begin to question whether or not following Jesus is really worth it after all? Could the rebuke of a few individuals in the crowd, maybe it's individuals in your family or individuals who you see at the workplace, maybe it's just the rebuke of your spouse or a child, could that be enough to keep you from following Jesus, from calling out to him, to seeking his mercy? I hope not, my friends. Persist and don't give up hope. That's the second way a blind beggar ought to respond when Jesus is passing by. Here's the third. Make bold and specific requests. Verse 40 reveals the sweetest truth. Jesus stopped. 
I mean, Jesus is on his way to the cross, and Jesus stopped. Jesus is about to do the biggest work that all of history has been pointing to, and Jesus stops on the road to meet this beggar who's been crying out to him for mercy. And he commands that the beggar be brought to him. The Savior of the world on his way to crucifixion was willing to be disturbed by someone who had nothing to offer him. And Bartimaeus' blindness was nothing compared to the excruciating torture that Jesus would soon face as he was restricted to the cross with nails in his hands and his feet, shredded flesh on his back, a crown of thorns on his brow. And yet Jesus stopped to tend to the needs of this poor blind beggar's need. And it's almost like he's a waiter in a fast food restaurant in the words that Jesus says here. He stands ready to serve. And so he asks, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, can you imagine having Jesus there in person asking you that question? What do you want me to do for you? But if we really think about it, does Jesus not wait now? with his ears ever peeled, ready to listen to the words of God's children so that we might make our needs known to him? What, what's different about this man, this blind beggar, from our own personal prayer lives? Does Jesus need to speak to us individually to let us know that he stands ready to act with mercy and abundant supply for our time of need? Like, to think that Jesus would be willing to ask that question, what, what do you want me to do for you? Like, like it's, it's almost like Jesus is stepping into a role of service. It's like Jesus is taking up a role as a waiter. I mean, we see Jesus later on washing the feet of his disciples. He was a servant of all. And he, he said, as I told you earlier, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Like, is that our heart, friends? Are we here to serve? Like, how do you treat people who are serving you? Do you say, oh, no, let, let me do something for you instead? Or, or do you find yourself like your fries are cold when they come out on the tray? And you're like, man, I'm going to tear you down because you got my fries cold. Like, is, is that really, like, I see some people who are like going through the, going through the drive-thru and they've got the Christian's fish on the back of the car and then they're cussing out the person who's giving them a cold set of fries. Dude, get the sticker off of your car. Like, that's not the heart of Jesus. Is that the example that we, as members of his church, are living out? Are we living a heart of service that desires to serve others rather than have all the service done for us? Because the high king of heaven, the sovereign creator God of the universe, offered to be a servant of the lowly outcast. Friends, you want, you want an example of amazing grace. This is it. If Bartimaeus in this moment had been driving, uh, allowed himself to be driven away by those who were the naysayers, if he had allowed himself to be driven away by his unworthy feelings, this story could have gone very differently. But he stepped forward with a bold and with a specific request. Now surely Jesus knew that what Bartimaeus needed but still, he asked Bartimaeus to name it. Why? Well, perhaps it was because he wanted it to be clear to Bartimaeus and to everyone else that this gift had come from him. 
not from any other source. You see, if Bartimaeus had just suddenly regained his sight without asking Jesus, you know, he could have considered it a fluke. The people in the crowd might have said, ah, something just clicked in his head. But when he put his need out to Jesus through his words, there was no denying for him that Jesus had made all the difference. And friend, I just wonder, like, what what prayers could be waiting to be answered for you if only you would call out to him? Sometimes we go without when God wants us to have something simply because we will not ask him. We do not have because we do not ask, as James reveals in James 4, 2. And faith made the difference for Bartimaeus. He knew that Jesus was more than just another guy from Nazareth. He knew that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. He knew that Jesus could restore his sight. And so he asked for big things. He called Jesus Lord out of faith. Like, are we going to give Jesus credit for less than he's due? What kind of Jesus do we pray to? Is he a shallow savior? Oh, I hope he's not. I hope you're asking him for big things, friends. Because we look around us all the time and things don't look so great, right? But our God is still in the business of doing big things. I hope we're not selling him short. Bartimaeus didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for food. He knew that Jesus could supply more than that. His faith was bigger than that. And listen, our faith is not in faith, it's in Jesus. It's ultimately Jesus who made Bartimaeus well. But the healing that he received, he received by faith. And if you're going to be healed of your sin-sickened condition, it's only Jesus who's going to make the difference. Only Jesus can save you. But this healing must be received by faith. This healing is received as you turn away from your sins and you turn away from your self-centered life and you say, Jesus is going to be Lord. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust in you. So, make bold and specific requests to God. That's the third way a blind beggar ought to respond when Jesus is passing by. Here's the final one. Give your life to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. I mean, when Barnabas is healed, we see in verse 43, that immediately he began following Jesus. He began glorifying God. In fact, when he did, everyone else around him saw it. They all together gave praise to God. This blind beggar with nothing to offer became a worship leader in the church of our great Lord. Friend, have you given your life to Jesus? Like, have you left your past behind Mark's gospel reveals that when Bartimaeus answered the call of Jesus, he threw his cloak aside. It was the beggar's cloak. He jumped up before he came to Jesus. He said, I'm leaving that life behind, and I'm going to live a new life for him. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you given your life to following him? If so, then are you glorifying God and living an example for others to do the same? You see, Bartimaeus was not ashamed to worship Jesus in public. He glorified God and all the people saw it. All the people knew what he was doing. Now, that doesn't mean he was doing it for show because he certainly wasn't. He was just filled with joy in what the Lord had done for him and he wasn't afraid to let it show. He wasn't glorifying himself. He glorified God as he followed Jesus. 
But his faith in Jesus wasn't a secret. He didn't slink away to a private life of devotions. And I just wonder, like, who's giving God glory because of what Jesus has done in your life? Do others know what Jesus has done in your life? Because when others learn what Jesus had done in Bartimaeus' life, they praise the Lord. David Brainerd was a missionary to the American Indians back in the 18th century. And one day he was witnessing to a chief who was close to trusting in Christ. But the chief held back. So Brainerd, he got up, he took a stick, and he drew a circle around that chief. And he said, decide for Jesus or for your current life before you cross that line. Like, really, what what choice do you have before you cross that line? And really, that's what each of us should do if we're truly evaluating this example of a blind beggar who receives grace from Christ. Just draw a circle around yourself where you sit. Will you decide for Jesus? Or will you decide for the life that you're currently living if you're apart from him before you cross that line? Because Jesus is passing by. Now, the good news is that Jesus didn't ultimately just proclaim that he would die on the cross, that he would be scourged, that he would be mocked, that he would be spat upon. But he also says on the third day, he will rise again. Friends, that's our victory cry. That's the song that we shall sing forevermore, that Christ is risen from the dead. He has defeated death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Jesus has conquered at all. And he offers to you the same thing. Dead as you may be in your sin. Separated from God as you may be. He offers to you reconciliation. He offers to you the hope that you too can be raised from the dead. Jesus has risen as the first fruits of those who shall rise from the dead. And while the wages of sin is death, Christ has come to provide for you eternal life. Is that a victory that you're celebrating now? Is that a victory that God has won in your life? Look, Bartimaeus has shown us what it takes to receive that victory. It's all Jesus and none of man. I mean, Jesus, the one who came and did all that standing, and we cry out to him by faith. We leave our piddly little treasures behind, and we go for the eternal treasure that he offers to us through his finished work. Is that your treasure, friends? Would you pray?